Good morning, everyone. Um, yeah, as Jess said, my name's Naomi, and I'll be reading the Bible for us this morning. Um, so our first um, passage is Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 24. And you can follow along on the screen behind me. For what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he, who, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Now we're going to go to John um, chapter 10, um, starting at verse 22 to 30. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe, because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now we're going to go to Ephesians for our last um, passage. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given to us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, but accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were there the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who was a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory.
Okay, thanks, Naomi. Let me pray as we get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's been written for us and for our salvation. As we reflect this morning on what it means for you to have chosen us before the creation of the world, we pray that both being confronted, we might also be comforted by this wonderful assurance of how much you love us. Amen. Okay, well, uh, hopefully you've had time to find a copy of the outline and have that in front of you um, as we come to the last of these three talks on the doctrine of election. Uh, what we've seen over the last couple of weeks, uh, firstly, we've seen that God is completely sovereign, uh, like a potter with clay, therefore our creator is entitled to do whatever he wants with his creation. We've also seen that we are totally sinful, uh, that there is no one righteous, not even one, which means that if God were to treat us fairly, if we got what we deserved, then no one would be saved. As I've indicated, those two ideas are building to this third and final talk, uh, which is also why, in a sense, we've kept putting off some of the questions that no doubt you've had. Um, I will do my best to cover them as I can today, but if we don't, uh, feel free to ask in Q&A, as Luke referred to. But it seems to me that most of the questions around this topic of election boil down to one of two categories, one of two categories of questions. Firstly, if it's up to God to choose us, how can we be held responsible? Uh, what about the question of free will? And the second type of question, if God does choose us, then how ought we live in response? Uh, what about prayer? What about evangelism? What does it look like day to day? Well, I'll see if I can say something about each of those along the way. Uh, but as in previous weeks, if you look at your outline, a similar kind of structure, a big idea, uh, some questions to consider, and then um, some thoughts on how we might respond. Firstly, then, the big idea. Uh, actually, uh, I've cheated a bit. There's two big ideas to today's talk, uh, and they both go to the very nature of God's character, uh, which is, as I've been saying, the key to this whole series. And so if you look there on your, on your outline... Uh, at point one, first big idea, when God chose us, here's the blank for you to fill in, when God chose us before the creation of the world. Even before the creation of the world. In many ways, the most astonishing aspect of the biblical doctrine of election is not that God chooses us, the most astonishing aspect is when he chose us. Uh, not just before we were born, uh, we saw that in Romans chapter 9, but even before he made the universe. So from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, there on your outline, a praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Ephesians chapter 1 makes it pretty clear that God chose us even before he created the world. And that idea that he chose us before the creation of the world, in verse 5, it's called predestination. Predestination. Uh, this is the strongest form of the doctrine of election, the idea that God chose us even before he made the world. 
And you'll see there that I've given you a reference on your handout, if you'd like to look it up afterwards, to the six different times in which the word predestination is used in the New Testament. Uh, All six references are there. And those little squiggles, if you're wondering what that is, that's the Greek from the original language. But uh, you can look them up there in your Bibles afterwards. Well, let me say, I realise that if this is the very first time you've even heard of the word predestination, uh, then your head is probably spinning at very high rotations at the moment with all sorts of questions. How could that even be possible? Before we dig into them, I do want to ask you to play the what-if game for just a moment. You know, the what-if game? Uh, What if predestination is true? Uh, Because if it is... I trust you can see that predestination is both confronting and comforting. It is both confronting and comforting. Now, the confronting part, obviously, well, that's pretty clear to most of us. How could God possibly choose us even before he started to make everything? So what I want to focus on for just a moment is why it's deeply comforting to be told that God chose you even before he started to make the universe. Uh, Two reasons. Uh, Firstly, this is kind of framed negatively. Uh, We saw last week that we are enslaved to our sinful human nature, which means that if salvation were up to us, we'd always make the wrong choice. So we'd have no hope. But the second reason, and why this is comforting, and put more positively... If God chooses us before the creation of the world, it's pretty clear that our standing before him has nothing to do with our efforts. Our standing before him has nothing to do with our efforts. And yes, I get that that's a bit of an affront to our pride, but it's also the most wonderful relief to know that you don't have to rely on yourself to come before God. And I say that's a relief because I know how fickle and fallible I am and how easily and often I stumble and fall. That's the reason, I think, why Ephesians chapter 1 began in verse 3 with, Praise be to God. Praise be to God, for he has chosen us in Christ. Well, earlier this year, I was talking to a member of our church, uh, a lady who's in her 70s, about the doctrine of election and predestination, and she shared with me a bit of her story about how she's tried to think this through in her time as a Christian. And uh, I asked her afterwards if she'd write it down for me because I was so encouraged by what she had to say, and I thought I'd just read it out for you today. So her name's Julia. She's in her 70s. Uh, This is what she says. When I first came to Adelaide in 1976... I checked out Holy Trinity and I was utterly appalled by the very first sermon I ever heard. Uh, It was the first in a series on the doctrine of election. I had never heard anything so offensive as the doctrine of total depravity and the idea that we might not have free will. I really didn't want to hear another sermon like that. But the preaching was so carefully argued with points backed up from Scripture, that I came back the next week, and the week after, and the week after that. But I decided that I'd try and beat the preachers at their own game 
So, using my Bible, I set about trying to disprove this highly offensive teaching. For three months, I filled an exercise book with arguments. But they turned out to be circular. It was so infuriating. Gradually, I realised that what I wanted to know was what was true. And so one afternoon I found myself crying out in desperation to God, it can't be true. And immediately these words came to me, it is true and it applies to you. And so at the age of 26, this offensive doctrine of election, which I'd found so confronting and I still do after 43 years of believing it, became a source of great comfort. I had found my identity I was an ordinary sinner, just like everyone else, whom God had for some reason chosen to have in his family of those for whom Christ had died. Well, what was that reason? Here's the second big idea for today. Why God chose us. Why God chose us. And I hear the blank for you to fill in on your outline. Because he loves us. Because he loves us. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says, In love he predestined us. In love he predestined us. Paul is saying that the reason God chose us is not because we were deserving in any way. How could we have been? The world hadn't even been made when he chose us. No, the reason he did was simply because he loves us. I want to acknowledge today that there are many questions about the doctrine of election which I suspect we'll never fully answer. So, for example, why would God even make some people knowing that he wouldn't choose them? Or here's another one. Uh, I'll never forget the day when one of my kids, uh, who was eight at the time, after bedtime stories, turned to me and said, Daddy, why would God make a talking snake if it would cause Adam and Eve to sin? Typical pastor's kid, right? Always ask the hardest questions at the most inopportune times. Here's my question. Why would God make the world knowing it would cost the death of his own son to redeem it? There are many questions I suspect we'll never know the answer to, But this one question we do know, why did God choose us? Because he loves us. Okay, there's the big idea. Let me move to point two then, some questions to consider. Some questions to consider. You'll see the two that I want to tackle at this point. Firstly, if it's up to God to choose us, how can we be held responsible? This is the question about free will. If it's up to God to choose us, how can you and I be held responsible? Well, at one level, we saw last week that the reason we're held responsible is because we all reject our loving creator, and so it's right that we reap what we sow. Uh, Although, of course, I do realise that more needs to be said on this topic. Uh, As you know, I work with undergraduates, so it won't surprise you to hear that this topic comes up quite often at uni. 
Uh, what I thought I'd do is introduce you to the single most helpful resource I've come across over the years. Um, it's a chapter that I photocopied out of a book, uh, which I give to anyone who asks me questions about election and predestination. I say, go away and read the chapter, and let's come back and talk about the ideas. And there's a paragraph that I've just printed there for you. Uh, the book is by a fellow called Don Carson, uh, who is a Canadian theologian. Here's what he says. The Bible teaches that both of the following propositions are true. Firstly, God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in such a way that human responsibility is curtailed, minimised or mitigated. And secondly, human beings are morally responsible creatures They significantly choose, rebel, obey, believe, defy, make decisions and so forth and they're rightly held accountable for such actions. But this characteristic never functions so as to make God absolutely contingent. The view that both of these propositions are true I shall call compatibilism. You notice that uh, Carson doesn't try and explain how both of these propositions are true He simply says, and I think he's right, the Bible doesn't try to tell us how, it just insists that both are true. That, of course, then pushes us in the direction of asking, well, is what he's saying supported by Scripture? Well, let me give you an example that comes uh, from the series that you have just been in before I came uh, the last couple of weeks, the series in Exodus, looking at um, the time when God leads his people out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, under the hand of Moses. Uh, In the course of their deliverance, uh, Pharaoh and the ten plagues are part of the way in which God rescues his people, and you're well familiar with that story. And the really interesting thing about the ten plagues is that there are different ways that God's sovereignty and our responsibility are expressed. See, sometimes Exodus says that Pharaoh's heart was hard. Sometimes it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And sometimes it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Uh, In fact, you see all three examples in chapter 9. I printed a short passage there for you, chapter 9, verse 34. Follow along with me on your outline. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again he and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so I may perform these miraculous signs of mine among them. All three examples in just one passage. And the point is that when taken together, I think it's clear that Scripture affirms both that God is totally sovereign and that we are completely responsible for our actions. Now, if you want a New Testament example or parallel, take the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer. You see, in the Lord's Prayer, we confess God's unfettered sovereignty your kingdom come, your will be done, your name be hallowed throughout the earth. 
but we also take responsibility for our actions. Uh, lead us not into temptation. Now, obviously you're going to want to check out other passages to see if this idea of compatibilism, God being completely sovereign and us being totally responsible, if it's true. You want to, as I urged you at the start of the series, to be like the Bereans and to test what you hear against Scripture. But for now, if the Bible affirms both God's sovereignty and our responsibility, then to return to something I flagged last week, in my mind there's not much value in us talking about human free will. There's not much point in us talking about human free will. I say that because it seems to me that when people insist my will must be free, well, what they're really worried about is God knowing our, act, our decisions before we make up my, our minds. And I understand the concern. My response is that it can give us the impression that the God who we're told knows every other detail about creation. He knows what happens to the birds of the air. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows the rise and fall of nations, the date of your death, the date of the return of Christ. It seems to suggest that God knows all of those things, but the one thing that he cannot know is your mind. And that, to me, feels just a little bit presumptuous. Or to put it this way, I'm very happy for us to say, okay, we have human free will, provided with your happy, you're happy with me adding and 100% of humans use that free will to turn away from God. Because as we saw last week, if we were capable of saving ourselves, then Christ died for nothing. Well, that's the first question I want to talk about. Second question on your outline there, halfway down on the right-hand side, has God predestined some for hell? Uh, And this is what's called double predestination. The idea that God has chosen some for eternal life, but he's also chosen some for eternal condemnation. Uh, I want to acknowledge that I think perhaps this is the hardest question of all in this series. It's hard because it goes to God's character. Come with me to Romans chapter 9, verse 22. Here Paul says, What if God although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? In verse 22, it sounds as if God has prepared some for condemnation. Uh, Let me say just a couple of things about this idea. The first is you'll note that in verse 22 where he speaks about some being prepared for destruction, uh, that is not one of the six occurrences of the word for predestination. It's not one of the references for predestination. And for myself at least, I find myself wondering that if the Bible never applies predestination to unbelievers, then maybe neither ought we. And the second thing you notice is that, again, without getting too technical, did you notice how the phrase prepared for destruction is passive, not active? The contrast is with verse 23. 
where it says God prepares some in advance for glory. Uh, I really admire the careful but precise way that Broughton Knox puts it in the quote there for you from his terrific book, The Everlasting God. The doctrine of predestination is that from eternity, God has chosen some for salvation in Christ, but has left others to their own choice of rebellion against him. On some he has mercy, drawing them to Christ. Others he has hardened by allowing them to harden themselves, or rather to be hardened by Satan, whose slaves they have willingly become. Now, I realise that this is pretty confronting. So here's what I think it boils down to. Given that we'll never comprehend everything about our infinite and perfect God, what we're being asked is, will we trust that he is good? Or will our discomfort with the Bible's explanation of election become our primary concern? To put it slightly differently, are you prepared to start with the presumption that the God who loves all that he has made is fair and just? I've given you a reference there on your outline to Genesis 18, verse 25. Here's that extraordinary scene where Abraham is almost bargaining with God over the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says to God, will you spare the whole city if you can find even 50 righteous people, or 45, or 40, or 30, and so on? Abraham asks of God, somewhat rhetorically, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the question for us is, if you can begin with that, with the presumption that God is just, you might begin to glimpse how this admittedly confronting doctrine of predestination can also be wonderfully comforting. Because what the Bible repeatedly insists is that God is both just and merciful. And yet, you might say, he leans to mercy wherever he can. You remember that because we've all rejected our creator, no one deserves to be saved? And that means that if God chooses to save any that doesn't make him unjust for not saving all. I'll give you an illustration. Uh, Imagine, if you will, that there are two convicted criminals on death row, both about to be executed, and at the very last minute, the king chooses to pardon one of them, but not the other. You wouldn't say that the king is unjust at that point, that's the wrong standard for assessing his character. The Bible consistently portrays a God who is supremely merciful, unexpectedly merciful, a God who, in fact, keeps relenting and withholding judgment. Think of Nineveh when Jonah finally gets there. Think of David when he repents of his adultery. Think of Moses pleading with God after the golden calf incident. Here is a God 
who shows mercy even when it's not expected. Well, for myself, uh, I want to say that I've been a Christian now for over 30 years and I still feel the challenges of predestination. I think it's right and okay for us to keep questioning and asking and debating. But what I thought I'd say this morning is that my experience, at least, is that having been a Christian for 30 years, I'm less bothered by election than when I first believed. Uh, that, that's not meant to be a cop-out. Uh, that's not meant to be uh, condescending to a younger believer, as if to say, I'll oh, just wait till you're a bit older and you won't mind it quite as much. Rather, it's an admission that the Bible probably won't fully answer all of my philosophical questions because that's not why it was written. The Bible wasn't written as a theological textbook. The Bible was written to showcase God's character, his incredible compassion and his mercy, which is new every morning. Well, a big idea, some questions to consider. Let me try and wrap up both this talk and this series with a few reflections on how we might respond. And you'll see we're near the end there on the right-hand side. Well, if you remember that second category of question I identified at the start of this talk, uh, if God does choose us, how should we live? Uh, why should we bother praying? Why would we persist in evangelism? Let me say something about this. Uh, the key, I think, is as we've seen in this talk... Although God is sovereign over all of his creation, you and I are still responsible for our actions. Uh, and that means that, on your handout there, election should not make us lazy or licentious. Election should not make us lazy or licentious. Uh, these are the two most common responses, actually, to election. Laziness. Well, why would I bother trying if it's up to God to choose? And licentiousness, which is just an old-fashioned word for self-indulgence. Because if God has chosen us, you know, we've kind of got to get out of jail free card to live however we want. Now, can I say on that that like in any relationship, think of friendship, think perhaps of marriage, if someone decides of their own volition to shower their love on you, you want to respond positively. Otherwise, the relationship won't last. Uh, or, more to the point, you would never tolerate someone treating you that way. So, when I get asked, why do I have to live a particular way if it's up to God to save me? My response is always, why wouldn't you want to live in a way that pleases your loving saviour. Okay, three specific and suggested responses there, all on your outline. Firstly, make disciples of all nations. Make disciples of all nations. Jesus never says, kick back and wait for God to save the elect. What Jesus says is, make disciples of all nations. 
And that means that our confidence in God's unfettered sovereignty, our conviction that his kingdom will come, that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that conviction turns us into Christians who want to share the gospel with others. Uh, I've given you a quote there uh, from an incident that occurred with William Carey. Uh, he is known as the, uh, he's the so-called father of the modern missionary movement. Uh, when he proposed to set up the first Baptist Mission Society in 1786, was told by an older minister, a little bit suspicious of this young whippersnapper, uh, he said to him, young man, when God is pleased to convert the heathen, he'll do so without your help or mine. Uh, or perhaps an example or an illustration closer to home. Um, about a decade ago, I heard about a church up in the hills that chose not to advertise its service times uh, out of conviction that it didn't need to because God would bring the elect to them. Now, I don't mean to be facetious, but the church doesn't exist anymore. It's closed down because people stopped coming. As an aside, can I say that if you're here today as someone who's not a Christian, at the invitation of a member of this church, if you're wondering why your friend or family member keeps nagging you about coming to church and talking to Jesus, the whole reason they do so, it's not to offend you. It's because they love you deeply. They love you enough even to risk your friendship if it means you might gain the salvation we have already received. So please ask them today. I know they'd love to tell you. At the same time, I hope that for the members of this church, you can see that the opposite view to God's electing choice, to think that it's up to us to choose God, I hope you can see that that places a terrible evangelistic burden on our shoulders. You see, that would say that the fate of the lost lies with us, that if people aren't saved, it's because we didn't tell them. And I think, in the end, the only way we'll persist in evangelism throughout our lives is knowing that the salvation of others doesn't ultimately depend on us. It depends on God's supreme mercy. Uh, my wife, Wendy, spent many years praying for an older, unbelieving friend. Uh, as that friend neared death, uh, she went to visit her one last time to urge her to repent. And sadly, she did not. I remember when Wendy came home afterwards and I asked her how she felt. And she said that she knew that she had done everything she could and now her friend's salvation was up to God, as in fact it had always been. My wife was deeply saddened, but she was not overcome by grief. Rather, she was content that whatever the God of mercy did with her friend, it would be right. Make disciples of all nations. Secondly, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved from Romans chapter 10. Now, those very confronting words about the doctrine of election in chapter 9 give way to Paul's immensely comforting words in Romans chapter 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord 
will be saved. Uh, so what that means, uh, when people ask me, how can I be certain that God has chosen me from before the creation of the world, um, I respond with the response that I was given when I first asked that question years ago. It's a response that stuck with me ever since. If you're not sure that you have been predestined, get yourself predestined today. Call on the name of Jesus. You will be saved. And so thirdly and finally then, Christian assurance. I want to finish this talk in this series, actually not with my words, but with Jesus' words from John chapter 10 and uh, that reading that Naomi brought to us. Because all along I've been trying to say that this confronting doctrine is also wonderfully comforting. And that's because Christian assurance lies not what in I will do, but in what God has done and promises he will still accomplish. And that's because Christian assurance is never found in us or our resolve or our plans or our intentions. Christian assurance is found solely in the conviction that God chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And that means, therefore, that the right way to finish is not by looking in at ourselves. It's not even looking at the list of questions that we might have brought to the table. Rather, the right way for us to finish is to look up, look up to Jesus, who with his Father is greater than all and who promises that no one can snatch us away. John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness and mercy that you've poured out on us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have chosen us even before you created the world, that we might be holy and blameless in his sight. We pray that each day that you grant us, until we see him face to face, that you might enable us to keep the eyes of faith fixed firmly on him. For Jesus' sake. Amen.